Hello. I am a robot. You are listening to an echo of glory. A 200% podcast. Hello everybody, and welcome to the 10th episode of An Echo of Glory, the 200% podcast. My name is Ian King, and over the course of this series, I'll be telling you the history of football in England and Wales, tracing the story of the game here from the mob game of the Middle Ages through to the modern day. On the 1st of January 1969, England held the World Cup, the European Cup, and the Intercities Fairs Cup. In less than a decade, the game in this country had been dragged out of the age of selection committees and players as chattels and into the 20th century. This is two simultaneous storylines, one warmly nostalgic, the other filled with cynicism and decline, often overlapping. This is the first of the two-part story of football in England and Wales between 1969 and two narratives concerning the decade that followed England's 1966 World Cup win. One is nostalgic, the other considerably less so. On the one hand, between 1967 and 1973, seven different clubs became the champions of England in seven years, and some of these title battles would be titanic. Television audiences broke records, and crowds in the first division remained buoyant. On the other, though, this was also a period of decline for the game in this country. The 1966 World Cup win did turn out to be a flash in the pan for England, and with the twin spectres of a perceived increase in violence both on and off the pitch, the game very much came to resemble the country in which it was being played by the middle of the following decade. Both of these stories run concurrently with each other, and both are, in their own ways, equally true. At points, of course, they intersect. This week, though, we're on the club game, the nostalgic side of things. When Don Reeves' Leeds United team won the League Cup and the Intercities Fairs Cup in 1968, Reeves became one of a small number of increasingly media-aware managers, some young, some veteran, some just starting out, some just about to retire all of whom began to make headlines as cult following started to build up around them. Leeds' 1968 trophies proved to be the springboard for what turned out to be one of the club's finest achievements, the 1968-69 First Division Championship. Reavy had originally intended to play a more expansive type of football, but a 5-1 reversal at Burnley in October 1968 put paid to that idea. 
dropping to a lone striker, Leeds only conceded 11 more goals throughout the remainder of the season and stayed unbeaten in the league. They lifted the title away to Liverpool, who'd been the only team able to even stay in touch with them throughout the second half of the season, and they did it with a goalless draw. After elimination from the Fairs Cup in March 1969, Leeds United won four and drew the other five of their remaining nine matches. They scored seven goals and conceded just two. Four of their five draws were goalless. Leeds became unpopular in a way that few other clubs ever had done before. The defensive football, occasional outbursts of aggression or violence, and the occasional flashes of something altogether more brilliant, was a perfect storm waiting to happen. It's certainly true to say that Schadenfreude became a popular pastime in Britain in the early 1970s. With Reavy focused on the cup competitions, his team's title defence ended nine points adrift of champions Everton in 1970. The cup dividend, however, never turned up. Leeds made the semi-finals of the European Cup, for the first-minute goal from George Connolly snatched the first leg of their tie against Celtic. Leeds pulled level early in the second leg, which was played in front of a crowd of 136,000 people at Hampden Park. However, two goals in five minutes at the start of the second half put the match beyond Leeds, and Celtic went through with room to spare and a 3-1 aggregate win. Also one of Jimmy Johnson's golden performances. Leeds were named the team of the decade, so therefore it was a case of um, they had to prove themselves. But they didn't, they didn't wash with us. We prepared for the game and all that, and the boss told us, says, there's one man that's going to win the game for you. And he just, he just stuck the number seven up on the board, and he says, Jimmy Johnson, he says, this boy Terry Cooper, he says, we man, just, just leave him alone with Terry Cooper, and he'll destroy him, and we'll get something out of that game. But the wind-up, we run out. The end of the 1969-70 season had been brought forward, with the 1970 FA Cup final being played on the 11th of April, four days before the second leg of the Celtic tie. This was so that the England team could fly out to Colombia to get acclimatised for that summer's World Cup finals before heading on to Mexico itself. The opponents at Wembley were Chelsea, another club who had risen back to a degree of prominence in the middle of the 1960s. These were two clubs that were like reflections of each other, yet so different, facing off. The South versus the North, the Blues versus the Whites. The first match ended in a 2-2 draw, but to talk about the goals alone feels like rather missing the point of the 1970 FA Cup final. Leeds did manage to throw away a win in a very Leeds way, taking a 2-1 lead with six minutes left to play through Mick Jones, only for Ian Hutchinson to level again for Chelsea just two minutes later. This match, however, was about much more than that. It was a blood-and-thunder affair, all niggle, kicking and squaring up, played on yet another dismal horse-of-the-year show Wembley pitch, if anything looking worse than ever on account of being broadcast live in colour. Yet it was also a titanic match. Between all the shunting around, there was some wonderful football played, and it was nothing if not dramatic. Such was the condition of the pitch by the end of it all, though, 
that the FA decided that they couldn't afford to play the replay there. The replay was instead booked for Old Trafford, but it wasn't played until the 29th of April, two and a half weeks after the first match. They faced off for the replay in front of the second largest television audience for a match ever seen in this country, behind only the 1966 World Cup final. 28 million people tuned in to see these two teams slug it out. And slug it out they did. Another 1-1 draw at 90 minutes took the match into extra time. But a David Webb header a minute from the end of the first period of extra time proved to be enough to win the cup for Chelsea. Leeds United had been chasing a treble, but they ended their season with nothing. To what a match this has been. Lorimer. Here goes Jones. Oh, we'd only got an inch higher. It would have been the winner. What a sensation. Well, this game owes nothing to the Wembley final. It's just been a continuation of it. England's bid to defend the World Cup couldn't have got off to much worse a start. To prepare for the altitude and heat of Mexico, the team flew out to the country before moving on to South America for warm-up matches against Colombia and Ecuador. Shortly after arriving in Bogota, though, all hell broke loose when a shop assistant in a jewellery store accused Captain Bobby Moore of stealing an expensive bracelet. England left for Ecuador, but with their flight back into Mexico stopping over in Bogota, Moore was arrested before the team could leave the country. Moore was put under house arrest, charged with robbery. After four hours in front of a judge and a fairly feeble case against him, riddled with inconsistencies, he was released and England flew on to Mexico. The general consensus now seems to be that the incident was an attempted frame-up, either to try and secure money from the England camp, or possibly to have more ruled out of the World Cup, weakening their chances of winning it. It has also been suggested that the bracelet was taken by somebody else, possibly as part of a prank, and that more took the blame to protect them. But whatever did or didn't happen in Bogota, the damage to England's reputation, for those who chose to believe the story, had already been done. When striker Jeff Astle got drunk on the flight back to Mexico, one newspaper branded the English as a team of drunks and thieves. If the 1966 World Cup Finals had been the tournament at which football began its transformation from black and white to colour, then 1970 was the tournament at which this process was completed. And on the television in England, 
Radical thinking by ITV's John Bromley ensured that, for the first and only time, the commercial broadcaster beat the BBC in the television ratings. England, however, had arrived in Mexico under something of a cloud, and that cloud never really lifted. Alf Ramsey was short with the press, refusing to let players do interviews, and both Ramsey and the press gave off a hostile air that hardly ingratiated any of the travelling party to locals. On the pitch, meanwhile, England kicked off their tournament with a somewhat dreary 1-0 win against Romania. The draw might have treated England as the seeded team. They played all three of their matches at the Estadio Jalisco in Guadalajara, but the draw had pitted them against Brazil, the hot favourites to win the tournament, in their second match. The 1970 World Cup Finals was probably the pinnacle of football's obsession with iconic moments, and this group match featured four. The first came after just ten minutes, when Jairzinho jinked to the right-hand touchline and crossed for Pele to send a downwards header towards goal that Gordon Banks somehow managed to flick away. The second came with a perfectly judged block tackle by Bobby Moore on Jairzinho, taking the ball from him with no impression of effort whatsoever, before carrying it harmlessly away to safety. The third came with a bad miss by Jeff Astle with the score still tied at 0-0, only partially excused by the fact that he'd only been on the pitch as a substitute for a few minutes. And the last came with Jazzinho's goal, scored with an hour played following some football alchemy across the edge of the England penalty area by Tostau and Pele, teeing it up for him to drive the ball in. This all only tells part of the story of this match though. It kicked off at noon and at altitude and vast swathes of it were played at little more than walking pace, with the conditions even affecting the Brazilian team, who'd been attempting to acclimatise for considerably longer than England had. England qualified from the group stages with an edgy 1-0 win against Czechoslovakia. Alf Ramsey had surprised some by picking the uncapped Alan Clark of Leeds United for the squad, so it was an even bigger shock when he started in a match that England had to win to get through the group stage. It paid off though. Clark scored the only goal of the match from the penalty spot, five minutes into the second half. Losing the match to Brazil, however, had come with consequences. As runners-up in their group, they had to play West Germany in the quarter-finals. If the Brazil match had featured football played at its absolute pinnacle at points, though, this match felt at times a little more like a comedy of errors. Things started going wrong for England the night before the match, when Gordon Banks succumbed to food poisoning and had to be replaced by the internationally callow Peter Benetti. With 20 minutes played of the second half, though, England were cruising. An Alan Mullery goal after half an hour had given them the lead, and four minutes into the second half, Martin Peters doubled their advantage. Then, however, it all fell to pieces. First, Benetti allowed a relatively weak shot from Franz Beckenbauer to squeeze under him to let West Germany back into the match. Then, Ramsey took off both Bobby Charlton and Martin Peters, replacing them with Colin Bell and Norman Hunter to assume a more defensive position. However, the law of unintended consequences soon kicked in. 
Beckenbauer, who had been dropping deep to Mark Charlton, was suddenly freed up to push into space now occupied by an England midfield now in an unfamiliar configuration. With eight minutes to play, Uwe Saylor pulled West Germany level. And three minutes into the second period of extra time, Gert Muller won the match from close range. England's time as the world champions of football had turned out to be a flash in the pan after all. The following league season, any disappointment at England's exit from the World Cup was soon dissipated by a nation again enraptured by an imploding Leeds United. In January 1971, they were bundled out of the FA Cup by 4th Division Colchester United by three goals to two, in a match featured, of course, on Match of the Day. The 1st Division title race, meanwhile, was already a two-horse race between Leeds and Arsenal by Christmas. On the 17th of April, Leeds played a home match against West Bromwich Albion, when referee Ray Tinkler allowed a quite clearly offside goal to stand. The match finished in a 2-1 West Brom win, but the disallowed goal was seen by millions that night on the television, with the footage shining a harsh light on the pressure under which Leeds United were operating at the time. A small pitch invasion and players arguing with the referee were very much not the image of the game that the authorities wanted to be splashed across TV screens though. However justified Leeds might have felt in their protest. The FA disagreed and they were banned from playing the first four games of the following season at home. Pass intercepted but Sagan is offside. The referee waving him on. Brown is going straight through. Taking on Sprake. And the goal by Aston. And Leeds will go mad. And they've every right to go mad. Because everybody stopped with the linesman's leg. justification for going mad although one must add that they played to the linesman and not to the whistle and that is going to be a decision or a non-decision which will be talked about for years there is no doubt that the linesman had his flag up no doubt that Mr Tinkler waved play on but the vital fact is that there was a moment's hesitation by the referee which caught Leeds absolutely dry with no chance of relieving the situation. Both teams kept winning and Leeds United even beat Arsenal by a goal to nil at the end of April. But when Arsenal won their final game of the season by a goal to nil at Spurs, the league title was on its way to Highbury for the first time since 1948. Five days later, Arsenal completed the double by beating Liverpool to win the FA Cup by two goals to one after extra time. Leeds had to settle for the relative consolation of winning the final Fairs Cup tournament on away goals against Juventus, but their domestic empty-handedness was, come the end of the season, almost as much of a story at home as Arsenal's double. The start of this new decade also brought about changes to just about all areas of the game. Refreshing themselves for the new decade, some clubs, such as Swansea Town and Bournemouth and Boscombe Athletic, changed their names, while the Football League evicted Bradford Park Avenue in 1970 and Barrow in 1972, in favour of Cambridge United and Hereford United. 
even Match of the Day received a facelift in 1971, introducing its instantly recognisable theme music, still used to this day. Elsewhere, the FA confirmed that they would finally be ending their formal distinction between amateur and professional players, a callback to the first years of the century, when there had almost been a complete schism between the amateur and professional games. The semi-professional game of the Northern Premier League and Southern League was winning the argument at non-league level. The Northern Premier League had been founded in 1968 to mirror the Southern League, bringing together the biggest semi-professional clubs from the Byzantine system of county leagues used in the North. The FA Trophy, a competition for semi-professional non-league clubs only, started in 1968 as well, and the FA Amateur Cup ended in 1974, with the FA taking this opportunity to introduce the FA Vars, a competition for lower-ranked non-league clubs. The FA also switched from goal average to goal difference as their preferred way of separating teams tied in league tables on points in 1971. And another change would come to have lasting ramifications for football in this country when the FA finally lifted their ban on women's football after half a century. Women's teams had sprung up around munitions factories during the First World War and by the start of the 1920s, women's matches were attracting large crowds, often being played for charity. The Dick Kerr ladies were the leading team in the Britain of the era, and at the peak of their popularity in December 1920, a match played at Goodison Park attracted a capacity crowd of 53,000, with many more locked outside. However, this golden era of women's football in England was to be extremely short-lived. On the 5th of December 1921, The FA, citing strong opinions about football's unsuitability for women featuring some extremely suspicious-looking research, introduced a new rule requiring clubs belonging to their associations to refuse the use of their grounds for such matches. The ban changed the course of the women's game in England forever, effectively killing it off in this country for half a century. It would take upwards of four decades after the ban for the England's women team to finally become properly competitive on the international stage. When we first spoke, the new £200,000 stand was being rushed up in time for Derby's first match back in Division 1. Clough, even then, was showing the kind of aggression that makes him the manager that everybody wants. Brian, let me first establish the fact that we're talking here four days before the new season begins. Now, at this moment, how are you yourself feeling? Super confident? Confident, apprehensive, or worried? Uh, right at this moment, of course, I'm feeling nervous about talking to you about the coming season. Um, it depends on what type of mood you're in, and it depends on the type of uh, problem you've got at the time. The feeling right throughout the cold season, obviously, has been one of confidence. But I, I can't visualise any difference of feeling because all managers must have this going from second to first division. If you don't feel confident yourself, you can't possibly spread confidence to your players. And this, of course, is what they're needing more than anything right at the start. They want to believe in themselves, they want to have confidence pushed at them, so they in turn become confident themselves. You choose then the one word, confident. Oh, very much so, yes. You might as well be confident as anything else. There's only two ways to go. You look up that way or you look down there. And uh, not many people with sense will look down there when they've got a choice. At 30 years of age, 
Brian Clough became the youngest manager in the Football League when he was appointed by Hartlepool's United in October 1965. Clough would only be with the club for a year and a half, but he took them to 8th place in the 4th Division, brought in Peter Taylor as an assistant and signed the 16-year-old John McGovern during that time. And the year after he left, they were promoted for the first time in their history. Even at his first club, though, controversy seemed to court Clough. On the 15th of November 1966, the then chairman, Ernest Ord, sacked Clough's assistant, Peter Taylor, claiming that he couldn't afford to pay him any more. Clough refused to accept it, so Ord sacked him as well. However, there was subsequently a boardroom coup, at which the directors of the club refused to ratify the two sackings, and ousted Ord instead. Despite this, in May 1967, Brian Clough left Hartlepool for Derby County. Derby weren't in a very good way, having just finished in 17th place in the 2nd Division, and Clough and Taylor's first season at the baseball ground was no improvement at all. In fact, they ended that first season one place lower in the table. Behind the scenes at the club, though, things were changing. Clough and Taylor took the rump of the Derby squad, Alan Durban, Kevin Hector, Colin Bolton and Ron Webster, and added Roy McFarland, John O'Hare, Alan Hinton, Les Green and, of course, John McGovern. That summer there arrived some grit, in the form of the veteran Dave Mackay, who was a year older than Clough, and Willie Carlin. Derby won the Second Division Championship in 1969. Clough was a natural talker and gave great interview, so it was entirely natural that he should become a media star, featuring on ITV's panel of pundits for the 1970 World Cup finals, held shortly after his team had finished in fourth place in their first season back in the first division. The following season saw Derby drop to ninth, but in 1972, following a tense four-way shootout with Leeds United, Manchester City and Liverpool, Derby were crowned as the champions of England. Typically, Clough's achievement came with a slipstream of upheaval and intrigue. Four weeks before the title was won, Clough and Taylor had resigned to accept a job offer from Coventry City. Clough resigning from Derby County was nothing new. He repeatedly handed in his notice, securing the knowledge that the Derby board would never be so stupid as to kill their golden goose. But tensions were already mounting, and not even winning the league could ultimately keep Brian Clough and Peter Taylor at the baseball ground indefinitely. The team's title defence ended with them finishing in 7th place in the table in 1973, and at the start of the 1973-74 season, things started to boil over yet again. On the 11th of October 1973, Chairman Sam Longson called for the sackings of both Clough and Taylor at a board meeting, but he did not gain the support that he needed to do so. Earlier that week, Longson had demanded that Clough stop writing newspaper articles and making TV appearances, and had the grill pulled down on the bar at the baseball ground to stop both Clough and Taylor from drinking there. Two days later, following a win against Manchester United at Old Trafford, One director, Jack Kirkland, demanded to exactly know what Taylor's role within the club actually was 
and instructed the assistant manager to meet him at the ground two days later to explain himself. On the same day, meanwhile, Longson accused Clough of making a V-sign at the Manchester United manager Matt Busby and chairman Lewis Edwards, demanding that he apologise. Clough refused to do so. He did admit on the coach journey back that he did make a V-sign, but that it was aimed at Longson, not Busby or Edwards, over a lack of tickets and seating for players' wives. Clough and Taylor had hoped to oust Longson as chairman as they did with Ord seven years before, but failed. They resigned together on the evening of the 15th of October 1973, and this resignation was accepted by Longson the following morning, to widespread uproar from Rams fans, who demanded the board's resignation, along with Clough and Taylor's reinstatement, at the following home game against Leicester City four days later. That evening, Clough appeared on Parkinson and attacked football directors for their apparent lack of knowledge of the game. They'd well and truly burnt their bridges at the baseball ground, and, it might be argued, elsewhere as well. So they've all had a tremendous time. They've all been in the side, touch wood, no injuries. Uh, and as I say, they've all played sufficiently well to keep in the side. I wanted to raise the point of injuries. Yeah. Is this luck? Or was there something some of it, to it? Some of it's luck, some of it's the way they're brought up, some of it's the way they're conditioned, some of it's the way they're talked to. Some of it's just a case of luck saying, get up, we've got no bugger else, get out there. What no. would happen to a player who was sent off? Uh, well, it's very difficult because it, it, well, there's quite a few bad refs around, you know. And if he got sent off through a bad referee, then obviously nothing would happen to him. But if he got sent off quite legitimately, uh, then he'd be in trouble from me. Because it, it's just no good. We've got 12, 13, 14 players. There's no point in having somebody out for six weeks. It is, perhaps, proof of the sentimentality of football supporters that Bob Paisley remains in the shadow of Bill Shankly in the pantheon of Liverpool managers. Paisley won more league titles and more European trophies than Shankly, but somehow that doesn't really matter. The sharp wit and the sense of humour, the feeling of grit and hard graft, the intelligence and pioneering spirit, the socialism. The Bill Shankly idolised by Liverpool supporters is an idealised representation of an idealised version of themselves. Shankly may have won fewer trophies, but he has come to represent the soul of Liverpool Football Club. Bob Paisley is loved and respected on Merseyside, but he was standing on the shoulders of a giant. Liverpool were not the only club to switch to a single-coloured kit in the 1960s. Spurs did so for European games a few years earlier, and there was a broader fashion in the middle of the 1960s for simplifying kits with Wolverhampton Wanderers dropping their black shorts for gold ones and Coventry City going from blue and white to sky blue. Manchester United even briefly dropped their famous black socks. But what Shankly did was mythologise this. He put up a sign in the players' tunnel reading, This is Anfield. More importantly than that, he immediately let it be known that this was to remind our lads who they're playing for and to remind the opposition who they're playing against. It was a power play, and it helped to create a legend which became self-perpetuating. Anfield became a fortress because Anfield was a fortress, and Shankly demanded it be a fortress.
and he insisted that everybody knew that it was a fortress. And it worked. When Bill Shankly was appointed as the Liverpool manager in 1959, they were in the second division. The club was promoted as champions in 1962 and were the champions of England in 1964 and 1966. They won an FA Cup in the year in between. The late 60s were a rebuilding time, but by the start of the 1970s Liverpool were getting back into contention and they won the first division championship in 1973. Shankly would follow that up by winning the FA Cup in 1974. Meanwhile, Leeds United, who'd finished in second place in the table for each of the previous three seasons, finished in third. Their real embarrassment, however, came in that year's FA Cup final, when they were beaten by second division Sunderland by a goal to nil. In 1973-74, though, Leeds United finally came roaring back. They won their first five consecutive games and ended up going 29 unbeaten from the start of the season before losing to Stoke City on the 23rd of February 1974. Curiously, they did have a small wobble, losing three straight matches in March, before ending the season five points clear of Liverpool in second place. Within weeks of the end of the 1973-74 season though, Both Liverpool and Leeds United had lost their managers. Bill Shankly, tired out by a life which had started with childhood poverty, coal mining and unemployment, retired. Liverpool simply promoted his assistant, Bob Paisley, from within. Shankly would lead his team out one more time for that year's charity shield at Wembley. A chance to say goodbye. The resignation of Don Reavy from Leeds United, though, was a different matter. Reeve had taken Leeds United, a football club of no particular distinction, and turned them into a European powerhouse. Throughout the years of his time in charge, when a different club won the league every season, Leeds were usually second. But he'd also remoulded his club as Shankly had his, and Reeve wouldn't be able to do this in his next position. Don Reeve was going to be the next England manager. The England manager's job had been vacated by Alf Ramsey after England failed to qualify for the 1974 World Cup Finals. But that's a story for the second part of this podcast. The years from 1969 to 1974 were years of tight battles at the top of the First Division with different teams winning the league every year. But they were also years of decline. The England team's fall from grace didn't end in Leon in 1970, whilst hooliganism was on the rise, as well as a perceived increase in on-pitch violence between players. The second part of this podcast will be on the death of optimism following England's 1966 World Cup win.
Each other and robots. <laughs>